Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to Starting a Record Label. This is a podcast where uh, I, Joshua Smith, slowly but surely start a record label eventually. <laughs> I actually got all my stuff back this week uh, for the LLC. It's uh, in full swing, so that's been great. Uh, but uh, we'll talk about that probably more next week. This week, I ran into a guy named Jason Zyman, and uh, he actually knows a ton about the legacy of Tooth & Nail Records. He also produced this documentary called Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s, that includes like Tim Armstrong from Op Ivy and Rancid, John Feldman of Goldfinger, and Tony Hawk, and just a ton of like crazy people and information about like Ska and why it blew up in the 90s. You can pick it up at skamovie.com in Blu-ray and even VHS form, and you can actually stream it on uh, Amazon Prime or uh, Vimeo. But anyway, we talk about how he kind of dislikes streaming and why he loves physical media and how he runs his record label on original vinyl. He's pressed vinyl for MXPX, Slick Shoes, Stavesacre, Kenny Wayne Shepherd even, and we talk about how he's not even spent a penny of his own money on this. So it was a great talk, super knowledgeable guy, super nice dude. I'm glad that I ran into him. So anyway, if you guys could do me a favor, Spotify and all these other podcasting apps, they don't do a really good job of promoting uh, any podcasts. That's pretty much up to us. Uh, so if you guys could use any of your podcasting apps and just you know search us thing and sub- hit subscribe and add it to your list, it goes a long way to help us actually reach people that would be interested in the podcast. Also, if you guys are interested in being on the actual record label, head on over to nottodayrobot.com and just plug in all your information and I'll give you a shout. But without further ado, Jason Zyman. This whole podcast is, is kind of like leading me to start a record label. And uh, I'm like, you know, I need to get all, I need to get more information about pressing plants, you know, what's the best. Uh, yeah. I'm actually talking to uh, uh, Ashley from duplication.ca, which is like a cassette duplication place this week. And, and it was crazy like to hear like, some places that I thought might be like really, really good pressing plants that, you know, I've heard people work with for years aren't. <laughs> and some yeah. places that I thought was just going to be a hole in the wall because of their website and everything else are actually like the best pressing plants on earth. So it was just kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, you can start fire up your, your podcast whenever you want. We can just oh. chat and do whatever yeah. you want. Well, I, I already I'm hit easy. record here. I'll, I added it all later. So. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm Jason. Zymet, and I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I started a little label called Unoriginal Vinyl. It's a vinyl-specific uh, reissue company, but I also work with independent artists who want to get their material put out on vinyl, but they don't really know how to produce something on vinyl. Uh, so I help them with either packaging, layout, and design, or uh, sometimes in the cases of artists who have come from a bygone era but don't really understand licensing and how their music uh, is owned, who it's owned by, and how to get in touch with them. I mm-hmm. sort of act as an intermediate between major labels uh, and sort of publishing owners, and I just help artists sometimes get their catalogs back. Sometimes I work with artists to put out a reissue that the artists couldn't afford with their mm-hmm. own money to reissue, and I'll find a label. I guess I'm just very good at finding money and not spending any of my own money. I've got a lot of friends who own record labels who uh, you treat it as like a passion project, but what it ends up becoming is like a money pit. Yes. <laughs> when you get five, six bands down the road and uh, with vinyl or physical media releases, it only takes one or two records 
to fail to put yourself completely in the in the black in the red what's the term yeah so i stay away from all that and i've managed to just um do this whole thing for artists i'm a representative of artists and what their vision is but i'm i'm kind of uh i work with a guy in switzerland and he and i uh work to achieve what the artist's visions are for for their packaging sometimes Mm -hmm. it's new packaging brand new out of the out of the box and sometimes it's restoring packaging from Mm -hmm. previous works that uh you know doesn't have any artwork that exists anymore yeah so uh one of the like i listened to your your podcast that was on uh labeled the tooth and nail podcast and you talked about the the speakeasy album it kind of blows my mind uh stave zakers speak speakeasy album blows my mind that there isn't any artwork from that still like you said it's just gone it's gone yeah Mm mm-hmm uh, the thing that I sort of hold on to so dearly about these physical catalog titles and holding things, you know, physically in my hands is that it's sort of the only version of the truth that I'll believe. I'm mm. a big fan of uh, MTV's State. Do you know that show? Have you heard of that? No, I've never seen it. It's like a sketch comedy show from the 90s, and a lot of the guys went on to make like Reno 911 and a bunch of sketch comedy TV series much later in life. But um, when it first debuted, in the 90s, it had a bunch of royalty-free, they didn't have to pay licensing fees to major labels to put on famous grunge songs, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all these types of things. And so the vision I have in my head of watching The State as a kid on TV, on MTV, is that Cannonball by the Breeders belongs on this sketch. Mm. And then over the course of 20 years, through acquisition and licensing and changes that happen in ownership of Cannonball by the Breeders, uh, that song goes away as a sort of crucial linchpin of that, what makes that sketch funny. Yeah. And so I see licensing of music kind of the same way. It's like if for some reason publishing gets weird on a record, you'll see on Spotify or on uh, Apple Music, complete albums that are missing tracks, complete yeah. albums that are, uh, you know, discographies from bands that are incomplete. And if I can hold something in my hand and say, this is like, you know, this is what this record is supposed to be. It mm-hmm. comes from 1990, whatever it is, you know, 1997 bouncing souls. And at that time they had the licensing for that one cover song. And that's part of the, the record. And then it goes away yeah. through licensing. Um, that feels like an incomplete piece of the puzzle to me. I've, you know, that's always worried me with licensing, whether it be movies or even uh, video games to where, you know, things are all going streaming, all going online. Uh, you know, there are, you're like, oh, this one movie and no one, and it could literally be erased from history. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, where's it at? And who, you know, who owns the rights to that? Um, a, a nerdy one that my wife loves because my wife loves Dolly Parton. It's like a, there's a TV movie from like the 80s that they even put on like, uh, I think it's Rocky Mountain Christmas or something like that. But it, you know, no one could find it anywhere. The only place that I could find it is like I actually had to scour eBay for a VHS copy of the darn thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of a challenge in sort of like, I hope I never move. I hope I never have to shift all this garbage <laughs> to another home or something like that. But I'm at a phase in life right now where I've been married for 15 years. We've got a five-year-old. We're, we're sort of domesticated in this spot in South yeah. Denver for a long time. And for my daughter, who's five, to be able to pick up a record 
and absorb it the way that I like to and yeah. put on the record and know how to physically play it and stuff like that. It's not just constant poise coming at her. It's like already starting to cultivate her own taste mm-hmm. based on looking at art instead of just like, oh, I like that song. I'm going to add it to my Amazon Music's favorite playlist. Yeah. And then it could go away. And you don't even know that it goes away half the time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. even my digital library of music is stuff that I'll own. I'm not going to just, I don't have any streaming devices or anything like that. So I guess I'm old fashioned in that way, but there's a, there's a mentality behind that old fashionedness to where um, the preservation of history is sort of uh, at my fingertips. I like mm-hmm. that. And the fact that it I, could never be taken away from you. And uh, you know, I know my daughter, even I listen to Spotify quite a bit, but my daughter is just, just, devouring like early 2000s pop punk which is hilarious um and your daughter 13 sweet and uh she you know she loves it but there was something about like having the album you know having the artwork just scouring it and even back then you know we didn't get most of our stuff off the internet uh weird enough though we did figure out we did find out who mxpx was over the internet which is kind of weird like early like 1995 but uh everything else was like mail order. Everything was like, Oh, this album, or you'd read the liner notes at the end and be like, Hey, we think these bands that we toured with and like, Oh, slick shoes. Oh, this or that. Okay. We'll, we'll look up those guys. Or they would just pop up in the Christian bookstore because you know, we were into, you know, the Christian pop punk seeing the tooth and nail stuff and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm right there with you, man. Um, but I want your experience to, um, hold some weight. Like I want those stories and those memories to be illuminated by the thing you hold in your hand when you show your 13 year old daughter mm-hmm. that record, that slick shoes record or whatever, you're going to hand it to them and, uh, and they're going to look at it and they're going to understand everything there was to know about slick shoes from 1998, mm-hmm. as opposed to if somebody else got their hands on it. Um, let's just say the people who own that record, universal records, some dude who's like an intern who is 22 years old, who wasn't born when slick shoes burnout came out is now, like this digital record is tossed on his proverbial desk and told make vinyl packaging for this. Yeah. And he just goes, okay. I don't, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Just look at a Google image search and it's pixelated. And I'm going to just take that photo and slap it on Photoshop and an art template and hit send at the printers at the vinyl. And so you see a lot of really, really shitty reissues that. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Cause I've heard, I've heard some really bad things specifically about some of the a couple of the tooth and nail ones to where yep. like they're just pixelated awful i'm like why would you do that i mean even in the 90s like i, I remember the, the one time that i screwed up I, I was working with a band and i was like okay we'll get these stickers done and it was like at the beginning of you know sending stuff over the internet to somebody and the stickers came back just awful and i'm like what resolution you know right <laughs> and that's just a sticker you know yeah like, we're talking like an album 12 by 12 13 by yeah. 13 images uh i mean you probably do better if you just scanned it yourself took it out of the jewel case you know well, so we do that like sometimes we have to do that because that's the only way and we just mm-hmm. restore step by step every single mm-hmm. uh you know like Every single trick you can pull out to restore artwork uh, is just uh, employed here by us. And what that gives you in the long run is a lot more freedom to work with artists that you want to work with. Or they come to you and say, hey, I got your name from so-and-so. We've been chasing this license for this record we have put out in 1997 or in 2007. And um, we hear you can work some magic with it. And, Mm -hmm. And so I do. And 
they are very happy with the end result and I don't really take much of a fee and it's got like a production stamp on it more than it is like a record label. There's things that I've put out that have been paid for by other people through like Kickstarter. I did a, a movie last year or two years ago that was all about ska music called Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s. I've heard about that. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and, and spent a lot of time working with all the bands to get their music uh, to contribute to the to the compilation. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, like the whatever eight grand or whatever it costs to, to press the records was paid for by the crowdfunding stuff. So... How hard is it to get a hold of labels that, you know, actually have the licenses to that? Because I've heard things about uh, Five Iron's earlier records that have been sold off to who knows who right now um, and them having a problem a little bit with, you know, dealing on getting those approved. Would you like to, okay, the first answer to your question is it's very hard. But as you know, when you're working with a bunch of different artists and everything like that, it's just sort of a network that balloons little spores at a time you know what i mean like you get mm-hmm. an offshoot and then you know this tour manager for these nine bands he becomes recommending you to this tour manager or this business manager and with the majors they're so consolidated now there's probably only four vinyl licensing people at every major label so okay oh, so they get, all know each other <laughs> I, I mean i can get in touch with them but this has been five six seven years of research you know yeah. like constant uh working with all of these different people to, to make these connections so that eventually I can make the big ask of like 10 titles at a time from universal for record store day, things like that, that are not tooth and nail. That's just like a, a pocket, a window of stuff that I'm doing right now. But the goal is to do much more broad uh, releases than that uh, in the long run. And mm-hmm. for five iron, when they did their Kickstarter, they bought their entire catalog back. So they oh, owned they? all of their catalog and, now they can license vinyl releases to whomever the highest bidder is and they get all the profits from it. So they are their own record label. They will oh, release at, at, you know, from here until forever, they will self-release everything that they own. And mm-hmm. if they have a weird one-off, like it's just the same as like a t-shirt vendor wanting to make t-shirts of five iron. That's what a vinyl company soliciting their music for a vinyl release is, is basically like, can we use your logo on our t-shirt? Can we put out your record on, on vinyl? Mm-hmm. And Five Iron will say yay or nay, depending on how, you know, what's in it for them. I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. That was kind of a that was kind of a weird thing that happened when uh, that was probably what 2012 when they decided to to come back, and yep. they just out of the gate they're like, we'll do a Kickstarter for like 10 grand or something like that, and raise like what 250 grand. Just odd. it was just insane. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't believe that. I truly couldn't believe that. I produce mm. a podcast called Magnified Podcast, and they deep dive every single Five Iron album and interview mm-hmm. all the band members and stuff like that. So you should check that out. If you haven't heard that, that's fun because I'm that deep in the well with that band. I've got every Five Iron record plus every, you know, like extraneous test pressing and stuff with alternate art, uh, every album you can imagine that they've ever put out. I make, you know, alternate versions of the of the covers with them and (laughs) that's that's the quantity is job one but i've got one this is funny did you listen to five iron frenzy two electric boogaloo ever that was didn't get too much into right so that's the power rangers i see that's awesome that's crazy Uh, yeah (laughs) so i'm i'm pretty deep in the well with all that stuff but the bottom line is um this is a hobby i don't want to be controlled by it in any way, shape or form. I don't want to deal Mm. with the headaches of owning my own distribution shop. 
uh, to get these records mailed out to people. A lot yeah. of the guys that dive in full uh, body submersion into owning their own record label, uh, they don't think about the liabilities of time. And when you're yeah. a dad, the time that it costs you to pack every single record that you sell, to ship every single record that you sell, to deal with returns on every single record you sell, but more importantly, all the taxes that you have to deal with on the back end. When you're mm-hmm. talking about a profit, especially physical media releases, uh, if your band is hot, you can make a decent amount of money on the streaming, but the taxes on streaming are, are a pain in the ass. But the physical releases, you're talking about per record, maybe a $5 profit per record. Mm-hmm. You make 500 copies. 500 copies these days for a popular band, like a really popular band, is still a lot of vinyl to sell. It's yeah. surprising. But you have to be a fan of the band. You have to not be satiated with the streaming service access you have to their catalog. You need to want more than just that. Yeah. And, and then so you create physical media for them. Are there 500 people out there in the world who love One Republic, the band from LA? Like, mm-hmm. yes. Are there 500 vinyl people who love One Republic enough to want not just everything they own digitally, but their physical releases? You start to get into like a weird dicey territory. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it makes sense, but when you get into these pockets of indie fans and nerds and and you know physical media guys like me, mm-hmm. there are 500 people out there who will want hardcore Zayo record from 1999 or whatever on vinyl. Yeah, there are, but um, it's always a gamble. And when you're talking five dollars profit per unit, 500 times five is twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah. Back out 40% for taxes. So for that release that you've spent your blood, sweat, and tears on, and then you're mailing everything, you have to pay for mailers, all that stuff. If you're just talking the economics of it, you're, you're maybe walking away with half of $2,500 mm-hmm. when you take out taxes at 40 and you know mailers and, and returns and overages or underages from the pressing plants and all the stuff you have to deal with logistically from them that you don't factor into your cost of goods. You don't factor in freight of shipping 500 records to your house. It's another 500 to $1,000. Or when they go bad or, you know, something gets messed up in the mail, I send another one out. Then you're like, you're negative at that point. Oh yeah. So that's like not to, not to stamp on anybody's dreams of owning a record label, but like, these are the things that I considered dearly before saying, which direction do I want to head with this? Do I want to make this fun and make it awesome and get to work with these artists that I love? Because that, for most record label owners, is the dream, right? You get to collaborate with artists who you admire and respect, and then you want to see them take whatever success or visibility or acknowledgement from the community at large that they have, and you, because of something you did, you increased it. You made people more aware of the Mike Herrera brand because you designed a 10-inch record for him. And people all love it or whatever, you know, like you're increasing the brand awareness and, and I get to net the benefits of all of that without any of the liabilities. Mm-hmm. My Carrera and his team can pay for that pressing. I just send them the bill after I've done everything, you know what yeah. I mean? And they're That's thrilled. Pretty, it's pretty brilliant, man. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like I'm sort of the, your, your podcast is about starting a record label, but I'm sort mm-hmm. of, I'm sort of the pirate out in the water saying, come join me. It's more fun. <laughs> it's safer yeah. out here. The water is mild. Uh, but a lot of people are just like, no, I'm going to build the biggest, baddest boat. And I'm going to go out in the middle of the Pacific ocean where the water's the choppiest. Yeah. And I'm like, 
island man let's island man let's go to the like like bahamas and just cruise with some rum in hand but like like my idea of starting a record label is going to be uh different than what most people's is uh my whole focus even though like i love i love the the actual physical media aspect of it i just don't see that as a way to raise enough money and so i think that to focus more on streaming and actually cultivating an audience online, uh, a lot more digital video, as much as, you know, you figure where you, you work, you know, where things work best. And uh, just having the band doing a lot more than just recording and releasing music, being, being out here in LA and seeing bands, you know, they'll record something and then they'll, they might do a music video for it. And then that's it. Like they'll record a whole either EP or LP, and then they'll just drop it all one day. And then, you know, nothing from them for like a year. So it's just kind of this whole digital realm right now. They really want something like once a month. They, yeah. they need something. Even the algorithms at Spotify would rather you drop out a single once a month than they would actually, you know, here's one an LP, you know, once a year. So, yeah. So it's going to be more focused on I didn't get to that. the end of your, I was listening to your episode when you were talking about naming your, your record label. I didn't get to the end of it though. <laughs> Did you end up naming your record label? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's called not today robot. So not today robot. Tell me about mm-hmm. that. I have a robot oh. as my logo as well. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, well, being in the music industry, you know, you see some of the process of some of these major labels and uh, I've even been in a lot of songwriting sessions to where, you know, it's just a machine. It's like a stamp, move the next thing forward to where someone will be a top line, right? Just come in. They'll get a beat from someone else. Who knows who, who this beat came from? And so they'll come over and they'll just sing melodies over it for like two hours straight until they chop something up or we put something together to where like, that sounds like a nice melody. And then they'll move it on to somebody else. And so you got, you know, people that are doing lyrics and it'll, it'll just get passed back and forth. It feels to you really like cool. it's, it feels to you like it's uh, just like a, work working mechanical belt going from oh absolutely assembly line to the other just just writing to even releases to where the band operates it seems more or the art the label operates it just seems so robotic it does not have the feeling left in it like the stuff that we you know the way that tooth and nail was earlier the whether you know they actually were those kind of passion projects almost for them to where they didn't weren't making probably a lot of money at the very beginning of it you know right i i feel exactly like you do about it where it's very mechanized. So this is like the logo for unoriginal vinyl. This is like nice. a hand, hand carved wood sign mm. uh, that a buddy in Texas made for me, but it's the same idea. It's like, here's this, here's the system. Here's what works for people to own a record label. And here's sort of like what I see about that. Like you have to bust out of that norm and think outside the box. So that's yeah. the, the logo. Love it. That's <laughs> the idea. It's, it's similar, similar. It's like, Everything's assembly line and cookie cutter and mechanized. And um, why are we doing it this way? You yeah. know what I mean? Especially uh, owning a record label these days. It's, it's a crazy endeavor. And I'm not a big proponent of like, I guess I should say I'm a proponent of it, but I'm not a participant of social media at all. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not. If you look at, don't have, I have a guy in, in Carolina who runs a Facebook for unoriginal vinyl and the Instagram and everything like that. But that stuff's not of crucial interest to me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I tried. Like, I was like, you know, he's probably on Facebook or something. I'll add him on there so I can talk to him at some point in time. And I was like, oh, no, you're not on there. <laughs> no, sir. No. And, and I'm not going to be. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, for five years, it was like, uh, 
the great time passer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I got like tired of being unproductive in my own life <laughs> creatively. Yeah. I was just sitting in a swamp of not productivity. The moment I got rid of all of it, it was like, oh, well, I've got all these ideas now that I can actually spend time, I've dedicated time to, and mm-hmm. they're doing better and better every day. You know what I mean? So that's exciting. But at the same time, like you're doing podcasts and, you know, you're getting to people. So it's, it's yeah. not necessarily that you're 100% away from like digital media. Because I don't no, see not at all. Like no, Facebook it's just, it's you know? just a lot of noise. Like the, the social media, like my network is through calling guys usually or, or getting in touch or somebody reaches out to me and I get wind of it. And then I'm like, let's get on the freaking phone right now and talk about this. <laughs> like what you and I are doing. You and I don't know each other, yeah. but we're just this is how it all starts. You know, it's the genesis of a lot of ideas for me and me liking a thousand posts a day or being hoping and wishing for a thousand likes uh, on my, on my social media or whatever. Like I don't give a shit about any of it. Like if I feel like posting a video of a record spinning or something like that, like there was a time where that was really permanent. It was like in, I had a million posts or whatever on the Instagram and then I just completely gutted everything, just rebranded yeah. and just now it's clean and simple and I'm productive so much more and I can branch out into many different conversations, making a movie, making a record. It doesn't matter. It's just creativity to me. I love it. That's cool. Yeah. I definitely, you know, for for the label, I definitely kind of idolize like the Brandon Ebbles or, or Larry Livermore uh, uh, from Lookout, or even even for people who do movies and television and nerd stuff, Kevin Smith. Like like those underdogs, the people that you know weren't at these giant labels or giant movie you know companies or whatever else. The people that you know have all their heart still left in it. So it's just you know yeah, it's something yeah, I really want to of- move forward with. There's a lot of business and commerce that can get muddy and, and muddy up your sort of like vision. But you, the three people you just named have an impulse that they can't ever stop creating. It's just mm-hmm. within their bloodstream to create, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's always uh, like with almost like a narrow scope view of like, I'm going to create whether or not people follow along on the train or they're interested in what I'm doing, it's not going to stop the course that I have. And I'm Mm -hmm. on this course to create. And as I create, it will begat more creation of other things or it will inspire new creations of towards other things that I didn't know I'd be interested in. I had a web series that I did for 10 plus years where I travel all over the country and interviewed complete strangers about their interesting museums or hobbies or whatever. And it would lead me into walking around a warehouse with fat Mike from no effects but then the next day it would lead me to meeting a guy who owned a toilet seat museum. Like it was all, it was all the same to me and it was all just telling a story and having something as a slice of life to remember that period of my life where I was traveling and like nonstop constantly. And so nice. yeah, it, it morphs, the vision morphs and then you kind of evolve with it, but the creativity never stops. You have to keep creating. So, mm-hmm. That's, you know, I, I was in bands earlier and, that's a lot of creativity that, you know, I just don't have the time for. I yep. feel like at least with a label, like I can, you know, work with other bands, produce other bands, but like having, you know, going through hundreds and hundreds of songs, just trying to find that good, a good one. I just don't have that time for anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. I felt the exact same way you do right now in your seat. I know exactly what that feeling feels like. It's kind of stifling. And I realized at that moment, it was like it dawned on me, like, 
So what are the things that are inhibiting my time? Well, I have a baby. <laughs> That's yep. impossible. I have after now after school activities and stuff like that. Um, but before your phone analyzed the amount of time you spent looking at your screen and stuff like that, I had that sort of like moment of, oh, well, there's one thing that I can completely get rid of, yeah. <laughs> out of out of my time. Uh, and devote my time towards something else. Predict, pre and, and there's always a fine line because my wife is the opposite, right? She wants to unwind and relax and turn off her brain and get a little bit of like a recharge from being on social media or uh, on her phone or something like that. That's her, her peaceful time and stuff like that. My yeah. most peaceful time is when I'm creating something. Yeah. However ridiculous it is. So I'm a little bit the same way. Uh, I got rid of video games probably be when I had my first child, she's, you know, obviously 13 now. So like, I just, you know, when I was younger, I'd like absorb video games and it was like, you know what? I just don't have time for this. Like there's a new one out every year. I just don't even like a couple of years ago, somebody gave me like a hundred dollar best buy card. And I was like, maybe I'll, you know, get the new Zelda game and you know, but no, I, I was like, you know what? I'll get something for my kids. And so I got them like a video game to play just so that, you know, they could play around with every once in a while. I just, I can't spend my time on that anymore. I feel like it's a waste. Yeah, I totally agree. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've got a good idea in your hands of what you want to do and how you want to create that. What's the deal with like the artists that you're finding? Yeah, I should try to like convince the artists is my next, my next step. You know, I've got a handful that I want to reach out to and it's just, um, I, I feel like artists in general don't want to do a lot of social media and they want to do what has always been done to where like, Oh, label gives them X amount of money. Then they, you know, go to a you know producer and then they release it and that's it. Or they want to tour a little bit, which obviously nowadays is, is way harder to do. But I, I think that things have moved in a different direction nowadays with, especially if you, you take a look at a lot of these uh, younger rappers and whatnot that have kind of blown up online. And I think that they have a better foot or, you know, uh, print to, uh, to follow as opposed to, you know, any of the younger rock musicians. Cause that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Sure. It's going to be trying to get, you know, trying to work with them and trying to convince them that we need to do a lot more than just release music once a year, you know? Yeah. So but you have bands at the same time, I want to kind of get that feel that yeah, bands in mind. Absolutely. Uh, I, but at the same time, like I, w I want to try to trans, you know, I want to take that feeling of what we had when we were younger with, you know, the, you know, being connected to the music and kind of trying to use that nowadays with the way that social media works and Spotify and everything else. And I, that's kind of a hard thing for me to kind of cross together. Do you think it's possible for younger generations to quite understand the, because a lot of what you and I experienced with a tooth and nail church youth group culture growing up was you had this strong emotional reaction to something because you were sitting there watching these bands play and you watched them uh, over the course of a few tours go from a 25 uh, attendant audience to a uh, 200 attendant audience to et cetera. And it sort of evolved organically that way. And you evolved and you grew up with them and your friends having the feeling of like salt on your lips from dancing in the pit and sweating it out and, and all that stuff. Um, and that's not to say that kids don't have those experiences today. I don't know what they look like. 
You know what I mean? I'm a little disconnected from that. I understand mm. there's like huge EDM culture and huge Coachella culture that circles and centers around sort of just like this really bouncy, effervescent kind of music and stuff like that. And kids are having those uh, positive endorphins released at big festivals and stuff like that. But um, I'm disconnected. So I've had a few guys come to me and say, I want to start a record label. I want to do this. And I'm like, well, what's your connection to the music of the 15 year old kid today? You know what yeah. I mean? Do you feel like your connection to your daughter allows you to see some of that? Or is she experiencing music the same way that we did when we were growing up by going to shows all the time? Or is she just like, I have a, a Spotify favorites playlist and it mostly sounds like the Harry, Harry Styles new record or whatever. Mm. She definitely devours new music that she loves. And I think that's, I'm in a bunch of, you know, Facebook groups online. Some of them can be like horrible pits of despair, but um, the younger, younger crowd kind of are, are in all these groups and you can see them like certain kinds of people exactly like we were. They're even buying vinyl and whatnot of the of their favorite albums of these. Uh, I would say smaller bands, even though they're getting quite large right now. Bands like Knuckle Puck um, and things like that. To where I really think that it can work, like a hundred percent. And I think that younger kids are kind of starved for for that too, especially yeah. now with the COVID thing. You know, nobody's been able to get out. At some point in time, at some point in time in the future, that will be reversed. But uh, yeah. And they'll be able to get out and travel a little bit more and, and go to shows a little bit more. But I do think that they definitely yearn for that, that kind of same feeling that we had, whether, you know, looking at the album, listening to the album, having the artwork, even because they purchase that stuff, whether or not they're listening to it, who knows? Like, right. But uh, they want that. Yeah. We're at an interesting time in history, I think, with youth culture, where when they come out of COVID, when the kids who graduated high school who didn't get to have the traditional childhood version of graduating and things like that. You know, they didn't mm -hmm. have a graduation ceremony. They didn't have a prom. They didn't have any of this um, are going to be going one of two ways. They're going to be going really inward, which I consider yeah. social media to be. It's like a bunch mm -hmm. of people inside their own heads, living in their own headspace, looking for affirmation for other people who are like-minded as they are. Um, or you're going to have that 10% of kids who just get like, they're, they're pent up. They're frustrated. Um, the social justice movements of the world are, are a little above their head, if that makes sense, in terms mm -hmm. of them getting out. So you're going to get to that point where, like, you're going to see kids throwing up DIY shows all the time. And yeah. that exists in, in especially southern Los Angeles with the ska core culture, the Hispanic ska core punk scene that exists. People are doing backyard shows to this day all the time. Oh, yeah. But that will become visible again to mm -hmm. the mainstream because people will be looking for that um, release that kids are only capable of doing with no life experience and with nothing to lose. And with a bunch of naivete, they're going to, you know, electrocute themselves with their own handmade generators that they saved all their money up, pulled $250 to buy a generator from Lowe's. And mm -hmm. they're going to start throwing shows up in pool halls and VFWs like we did when we were kids. Yeah. Because they go to Cornerstone. There was a million small little label, little right. uh, concert things outside people's trucks, you know, yeah, so. generator stage shows like yep, we used to play at Cornerstone. Totally. Mm -hmm. We did the same thing. We played all those shows, but uh, I feel like there's a particular moment in history right now where you have, if you're tapped into it or your daughter's tapped into it and she's going to these shows, you get exposure to the idea that, um, that culture 
there's always a need for that culture, but especially now when people are burnt out, like there's only so much friggin' time and energy yeah. you can spend here without just being like, I'm, I'm over it, man. Like let's get out and feel the, uh, adrenaline of pushing into another 18 year old kid, <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever, 13 year old kid listening to fast, angry music. Cause there's going to be a lot of angry people out there and this is going to be their release in a healthy way. Um, and I think it, you know, I think they're starved for that. I think they're starved for, you know, not only contact with other people, but uh, the kind of music and that kind of, you know, experience. You know, you, as yeah, well. but you have to find a way to communicate that. You know what I mean? That's what Tooth and Nail did. That's what Lookout did. They took all of these things. Lookout did it in the late 80s. Tooth and Nail did it in the late 90s. Nobody did it in the late you know, maybe like No Sleep Records did a little bit in the late 2000s and the yeah. aughts with like La Dispute and those types of bands. But um, we're at that, you know, that the bell curve is going to hit the apex here soon with people just going like, give me something yeah, interesting and different and uh, angry and aggressive and raw sounding because like there's only so much like perfectly on top of the beat EDM music that you can listen to before you're just like, I gotta have something else. <laughs> like, uh, even you um, know, working in the recording industry, like the rocks the same way to where like they chop it up all to crap, you know? Right. And I'm, you know, I've done that for so long for artists. And I was like, you know what, when I started producing stuff 10 years ago, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Like no. I've just, it's just for stuff that I work with. So, you know, that's part of the robot aspect too, to where like, I like working with analog tape and other things that kind of force you not to do that. Right. But I'm also but digital, but <laughs> you got to do the kid thing, the younger mm -hmm. culture thing, because the guys who are in their thirties now trying to make yeah. it in bands and stuff like that, they've oh, yeah. got a completely different reason for being in a band. Mm -hmm. They know they what it takes. To, yeah. Well, they know what it takes to either make it or not. Mm -hmm. And they're going to start a band in their thirties or still be in a band in their thirties, four yep. years strong. Like, why are they still a band? They're great. But mm -hmm. why are they still making music? You know, they've got a completely different agenda than to just like feel the rush. Yeah. Of that audience is still there though, which is kind of crazy. Totally. You know? Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's great. But that audience is now 25 years old. Yeah. They're not 18 anymore or 16 anymore. And so, I mean, in my opinion, if you're going to start a label and you want to look for bands, it's looking to that culture to mm -hmm. find your next big thing. That's all that all, any of those other guys did. They plucked Billy Joe Armstrong out of obscurity Yep, and he starts Sweet Children because he's just at all the shows all the time. He's mm -hmm. going to all these punk rock shows. He starts Sweet Children, and the rest is Green Day history. Yeah, Brandon Evil's no different. You know what I mean? Like they're all doing that thing where they're not looking towards the bands who have a really solid business plan. Mm -hmm. They're looking for the kids who have nothing to lose. So yeah. that was yeah, yeah. I've talked with about that with a few people. Like you know, I'm not looking for bands that are even that are even great writers. You know, I'm looking for bands that are going to be a hundred and 200% into this, you know? So yeah, I got nothing to lose. Like this yeah. is it for them. You can always work on those things too, you know, whether it's songwriting or, you know, yeah. your tone or whatever it is, you know, as you as a band being live, that's always something you got to work on. So, right. Yeah. So I wish you luck in that endeavor. Well, thank you. And thanks for coming on, man. I was kind of crazy. Like we just chatted up on <laughs> Instagram, yeah, like, Oh, weird. All right. Yeah, dude. Have you on the podcast. I need more people. <laughs> Why not? I don't know who's going to hear it. doesn't matter to me. Again, it's all part of the creative process. And if I can find mm. other creative types in the world out there that have one listener or 200 listeners or 10,000 listeners or 200,000 listeners, I don't give a shit. It's just good for the brain 
to exercise those muscles and do it as much as you possibly can and do it in real time. That's also another thing for me. It's like, let's mm. just do it in real time. Cause it's, um, it's, it's the real deal. Like it's the genuine yeah. thing. And maybe something you said, or I said today will inspire either of us to go create more and say, Oh, I really want to get focused on this part of my, my operating plan. Yeah. And so you inspire me just as much. Well, thanks man. That's what you're doing. Is there uh, is, is you got anything coming up uh, recently that you want to shout out <laughs> to or? <laughs> well, we're in June of 2020 coming out of uh, the COVID stuff with all the pressing plants now up and operating. I would mm-hmm. say that I have eight releases scheduled for the next month. Nice. Uh, um, and I'd say you've heard of at least six of the eight. Very, very, it's, yeah, you'll know mm-hmm. who they are and what they are. And I would definitely finally, know I'd, I would buy right now. If you, if you had dogwood building a better me on LP. <laughs> so the funny thing about that one, I will tell you that story. Um, <laughs> that's owned by, that's owned by a major universal mm-hmm. yeah. Tooth the nails. Entire catalog is owned by a major through thick and thin is not. They were on rescue records when that got put out. So I can put that out tomorrow. I know Josh mm-hmm. real well. So he's given it to me yeah. to put out if I want to. Um, the artwork for building a better me is fantastic, mm-hmm. but the song selection on that record is about six solid, perfect songs mm-hmm. and then <laughs> filler for the rest. So what if this is just an idea I'm going to spitball at you? What if I did the artwork for building a better me, but I turned it around and made it the artwork for reverse and forward again, which is like the best of dogwood the greatest okay. sense of dogwood like a compilation of all their best tracks from all their records because they put out a prolific amount of tunes but the p- amount of people who know dogwood's catalog yeah again is there 500 people out there who love vinyl enough and dogwood enough who still <laughs> remember that who want to buy that one record or yep. would they just want a best of like the spotify playlist of best dogwood songs yeah i'm leaning towards the best of yeah so they put out a compilation called reverse and forward again Mm-hmm. in the late 2000s which had the worst artwork you've ever seen in your entire life yeah <laughs> it was slapdash together it was a joke but the building a better me artwork was flawless flawless, mm. flawless in its execution so what if i did building a better me's artwork but changed it to not say building a better me changed mm-hmm. it to the best of dogwood and made i mean i love a lot like of the other it. dogwood albums and whatnot so if you did a best of i'd probably be interested in that but for right. some odd reason the building a better me uh, album it was like a cultivation of kind of like their progress at the time. And it just yeah. sealed in my heart at the time when, in all my friends heart at the time, like my love for Dogwood. Oh, I don't yeah. know why, but I uh, agree. I'd be, I love- I'd be, I'd be interested in both to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> when they came out, they came out two, three years ago. They were toured with five. Or they didn't tour, but they were on a couple of dates with fire iron out here. Yeah. I was like, I got to get it. I got to be here. And you were there. Yep. Sweet. That was MXPX and fire iron dogwood, right? Yep. Yeah, that was a good one. That I, I love that poster with Anchorman. Did you see that one, mm-hmm. the San Diego poster? With, yes. That's a good one. <laughs> I, have, I have that on my wall, I think, somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence on Dogwood just because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people like you and me out there who have significant memories about that band. I, I understand that, it's small, though, because even with those early records, they probably they didn't press a lot of those. And as I don't know I if they're vinyl them, And I don't listen to them very much. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if they're vinyl people. I say yeah, yeah. if you're if you're not going to pick your CD off the shelf, mm-hmm. why would you go spend thirty or forty bucks on a vinyl? You know what I mean? 
it's and so people to I, even in a I, tooth and nail group that I'm in, it's just people to have it. Like, you know, it's people older yeah. like us or whatever where they're like, Oh, I like that. And you know, I have a, probably five or six unopened vinyls on my, you know, on my shelf. So it's kind of yeah. just to have it Any, sometimes. I think. Do you have anything I've put out? Okay, if you don't, I won't be hurt. I can't. I don't. I don't probably have anything you put out. I just any you know. any of the MXPX recent stuff. No, got it. <laughs> because to be honest, because I don't really see it that often. Like when well, I saw it's that only one for sale by them. Like that's the that's the other thing. Yeah. Like I said, I don't put myself. I will put myself into record stores eventually, but I won't. Mm-hmm. I haven't. I've done everything through the bands for sale by the bands. And that's one of the things. Out. Like I noticed, like when I saw the Mike Carrera thing the other day, I was like, "Oh, dude, what?" And he's done some re-releases. Oh, dude, I'm definitely into this and looking into getting some. But you know, like it's just yeah. kind of you don't see it very often. Yeah. Again, at, at because I feel like you get in your mind who your audience is. You know exactly mm-hmm. what they want, what they're shopping for. You know exactly how to approach them, and you cultivate that audience over time. This isn't yeah. a, this isn't something I just invented overnight. You know what I mean? It's mm. something that I've been pounding at for ten plus years with tooth and nail. Hey, I gotta yeah. do your artwork. Your artwork sucks. Your packaging sucks. Let me get in the weeds with you guys and do it for you and show you and proof of concept. And I heard no forever. Yeah. The thing about me is that I don't really care if you tell me no because i'm going to ask again mm-hmm. and then if i get a no and you give me a reason why then i can start to fine tune what my ask is mm-hmm. according to your no does that make sense i do that, that in business all the definitely time. makes sense because i'm trying to get people on the podcast sometimes like i get a lot of either ignored or no's so it's kind of yeah definitely what do you yeah and you have to like if you can get them to answer a couple questions like what are you looking for mm-hmm. my podcast to be what would you like to be asked that you're not getting asked by other people? You know yeah. what I mean? What subject are you feeling like uh, you need some collaboration creative, creatively on? Because yeah. most people think a podcast is about, okay, this guy, this host for this podcast, he's got his agenda. He's going to drill me with 10 questions. It doesn't have to be that way at all. No, no. Can be I like having forth. a conversation, to be honest. Almost the Joe Rogan kind of idea of having a podcast. And the idea behind mine is kind of like, I want to interview people that, you know, have been in the industry or are currently in this industry that maybe you could help me figure out what I need to do. Like uh, one of the two of the people that I kind of sent emails to a couple of different times now uh, are uh, the Clark brothers and uh, yeah. Brandon uh, from dead poetic. So, cause they both do freaking amazing artwork. So right. I was like, you know what? I want to get these guys on the album and say like or on the podcast and say, you know, what do, you know, what do I need to be preparing for all this stuff? You know, you know, what are some of the things that I need, you know, that people maybe aren't, don't understand about artwork, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of hard to get a hold of those guys. (laughs) Yeah. They don't do podcasts really. No. Rarely. I've seen Brandon do a couple, but I haven't, yeah, the other guys, they don't seem to do anything else. So. (laughs) Yeah. And even Brandon's podcasts that he's done with people that he's well acquainted with, Mm-hmm. He's very, very close to the best on everything. Mm-hmm. If you've noticed that, even his labeled podcasts and stuff like that, it was very close to the chest. And yeah. uh, it's, it's you know, some people just really enjoy doing the work only. They're not in it for the recognition. They're not in it for the social media. You know, like fan. Like again, mm-hmm. some people are so deep in it. They're like, if that happens, if that comes my way over the course of time, so be it. But I'm far too busy to think about whether or not it's happening and care about it. And maybe when I'm sitting at the fireplace at at 80 years old on Christmas night and I look back on my life, I'm going to have this like dawning on me moment. Like, wow, 
I made an impact. I really did something for people, Mm -hmm. but it ain't happening when they're 45 or 32 or 64. They're just too busy working. Yeah. Well, artists too. I think a lot of them are introverts, even though as much as they're like, you know, the front people of the band or whatever, a lot of them are just introverts, you know, like maybe sometimes don't like being out there, even though they are out there. (laughs) Yeah. And my job is to draw those things out of people. That's literally all I do for a living is to Mm -hmm. draw that stuff out of the most introverted or the most outgoing or whatever, and just match the speed, like find the speed. Or sometimes you have to set a tone, like, you know, um, that labeled podcast, it was like, I, I made deliberate choices about how I approached that conversation mm-hmm. and the way that I took the tone to it. It was very academic. It was almost scholarly. It was almost yeah. more subdued than you and I are being uh, for a reason. It was strategic, you know, like I knew that I was the audience of a labeled podcast, but I was also not going to be uh, of much interest to most people. So mm-hmm. I'm going to set the tone right away. I know how to set a tone <laughs> and say, I'm the guy who will present you with a lot of information and you'll either love it or you'll be like, this is garbage. Turn this off. (laughs) No, I loved it, dude. I listened to every second of it. (laughs) That's totally fine. (laughs) I don't care. Turn it off. Do something else with your time. Find something better to do. That's fine. Mm. Uh, It's not going to slow me down one way or another. Uh, (laughs) So I would say the advice I would give to you is don't take umbrage. Don't take offense. Have thick skin about who you're approaching and how many times you get rejected because for every 20 people you reach out to, one might get back to you. And that one conversation might be enough to make the other guy who said no to you three times already come around. Yeah. You know? Do you know how many times Brandon Ebel said no to me? <laughs> I can't count it. I mean, look at how many records are on here and then triple it. That's mm. fine. That's fine. I said, well, then I'll do the work and I'll prove to you that I'm right. And eventually I did. And that's fine. Yeah. Good. Well, dude, hey, thanks, thanks so much for coming on, man. And, you know, spending some time with me. I know you're busy and whatnot. And I slept in a little bit so <laughs> it's all good man yeah all right well great talking to you thank you so much have a good one good you luck too, with your dude. podcast thanks appreciate it